0: You know, when I step back and just look at a utility as like a a group of of people trying to do their best to keep our lights on, it's really tough to transition from this 1950s model of just like, just keep the pipes full um, and, and make sure there's not too many leaks to like, how do we look at all the changes that are coming to this utility space and all these opportunities enabled by technology. Um, and, and what would we, what would we do to build a better world? And how do we manage all this complexity in a way that, that we still have a business?
1: Welcome to the Veraverse, Immersive Sustainability by Vera We are a storytelling and mentorship platform designed to support and inspire the sustainability champions of the world. This super group of change makers wields circularity, art, science to write a formula for the very best of humanity. And together, together, we make saving the world
2: Okay, good morning everybody from Park City, Utah, here in the United States. I am standing on Eastern Shoshone land and really glad to be with you. My name is Chance aka the designer here in the Veraverse, And we are very thrilled to be joined by the wonderful Matt Abbott to talk about community resiliency and circular supply chains. Matt, if you want to say hello. Alright, um, so we'll do a quick introduction of Matt and then we'll do a little housekeeping and then we'll dig into the conversation here. So Matt Abbott is the Director of Sustainability at Give Group. He splits his time between backward looking data collection and case studies for Give's open source program and R&D efforts for Give's HVAC, DHW and supply chain. Matt manages numerous partner relationships related to electrification and regional air quality and has more than 13 years experience identifying the opportunities to create value across the supply chain using systems thinking. He's also known as the systems thinker here in the and we'll get into that a little later. He's built pioneering programs, challenged assumptions and driven revenue with a focus on renewable energy waste and water. Matt has negotiated the largest U.S. university renewable energy contract at the University of Utah Garner national media attention, working as an environmental program manager for Park City, Utah, and holds an MBA in sustainable business and a BA in biology from Colorado College. He loves mountain biking, backpacking with his wife, peregrine, and staying engaged with the community in Park City, Utah. So we share a similar footprint here. <laughs> okay, Matt, let's uh, let's jump in. So first, origin story. What has brought you to this point? You know, the personal shit. What... what uh, yeah, what is your hero's journey, Ben?
0: Uh, man, um, so I grew up in the Midwest, um, North Chicago. Um, I there's many stories within that, of course, uh, and then one of the critical junctures was um, I had a choice between going to Germany to train horses or go to college, and I cho- chose Colorado College, which was a great decision. Um, and uh, my family was in the sciences, so I kind of stumbled through a biology program, which was very good um and towards the end of my junior year I figured out I did want to be a veterinarian um but I really liked the problem solving aspect the diagnostics of of trying to figure out big problems and uh found myself drawn to sustainability through a variety of um, great lectures great teachers and professors um and then um from there moved to Seattle joined a consultancy there uh, Cascadia Consulting Group and did waste and uh, built environment uh, consulting all in sustainability and then from there, made my way to Boulder for a little while and then Park City since 2012. Um, and there's you know, there's all sorts of little uh, junctures and in, inside stories out to all of that, but that's kind of a, the big picture. I am happy to dive into any aspect of that or curiosity you got.
2: It seems like the Midwesterner has a desire to be in the mountains with Boulder and Park City, right? <laughs>
0: yeah yeah, I mean, Colorado Springs is my first kind of introduction to the to the front range and um, sunny winters, uh, which which were <laughs> a miracle. <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, that's interesting, right? It, you know I, I know uh, some of our audience here in the u k, and they talk about how much it rains. Um, and I've heard the term, it's pissing it down right now, which is one of my new favorite things to say when it's raining. Um, but uh, yeah, it all depends on where we're at in the world and finding something new is is really refreshing, right? Especially when you're connecting to nature. Well, we'll kind of, we'll dig into some of your background as we get into the conversation a little bit, but let's have some fun first and, and kind of get to know you through a creative lens. So we're going to build your Veraverse change changemaker slash sustainability alter ego character. So you are the systems thinker, um, officially in the Veraverse now. So let's, let's kind of build that out. What, what is your favorite animal and and why did you choose? I like, I like what you chose.
0: Oh yeah. So growing up is definitely the polar bear. I think some of that's just being like a little boy. Um, uh, and then like, as I've, I've worked with a ton of animals. Um, so I've got a lot of different affinities for them, but, um, I would say bears overall, and, and you know, brown bears, especially in the United States, between being like a keystone species, um, very intelligent, uh, a good indicator of a healthy environment, um, That's and just kind of their role within their, their vast swaths of territory is, is something that I identify with. I'm much more like a, a, a dog and bear person than a cat person, as much as I love cats.
2: You know, I just there was actually a post that went up on on Wonder from the Call to Conservation that was talking about how Wyoming is trying to open up hunting of grizzlies again because the population has grown. um, You know, particularly in Yellowstone National Park, which is really interesting. And um, maybe I'll I'll grab a link to that article because it was a really well balanced look at how humans and animals interact and whether we should or shouldn't be hunting and how you know make sure we're promoting human safety but also what's best for the for the wildlife as well so really interesting so bears kind of been on my mind lately um have you bet have you seen a bear in real life just out of curiosity oh yeah
0: yeah yeah okay absolutely so actually uh i I did some I did some research work on the U.S.-Mexican border, where we're tracking mountain lion and jaguar. So we had a bunch of camera traps. We're basically out out in the wilderness quite a bit. So mm-hmm. I've seen brown bears, black bears in the wild. Um, yeah.
2: Awesome. Okay. Um, yeah, I've never seen a grizzly in the wild, but I have seen black bears uh, quite frequently. Yeah.
0: Um,
2: okay. Um, your favorite nature element? There's a there's a couple things going on in here. Um, tell me about that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, growing up, I always loved finding moss in the forests. Uh, just like what it is—this, um, this like fuzzy little delicate thing that grows over everything. Um, you know, I definitely have a love for uh, rain, um, both from the, from the Pacific Northwest, a good thunderstorm, in the Midwest. Um, I, I don't love lightning as much as I used to, being in the Intermountain West, just for for uh, wildfire risk, um, which is a whole topic in itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, yeah, kind of high level.
2: Thanks, nice. okay. All right, and then the last one, uh, kind of our favorite, I think here, um, sustainability beacon. What is the thing that motivates you to do the work that you do? Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, my the answer I gave you is is sharing nature, which which I get a lot out of personally. Um, and I very much believe it's is something that everyone should have access to in some form or fashion um, and find their own connection and meaning within. Um, you know, the, the more selfish answer is that I really love challenging problems and sustainability is such an intersection of, um, human created problems in our own psychology and our own programming and evolution. Um, and, and trying to figure out how we pull out our best nature, uh, is, is kind of an endlessly fascinating topic.
2: So a lot of our audience is, you know, kind of sustainability entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs, right? Um, I I think that really speaks to the ambition that comes from taking on those roles, right? Whether you're out on your own trying to make and build something new and creative to kind of disrupt a system or you're inside the system and you're trying to disrupt the machine a little bit, right and make positive change. I think that really resonates well. So let's let's dig into that a little bit further. What what is like one piece of advice you would give somebody when they're facing a big challenge, right? They kind of looking up at this big wall and they don't quite know how to climb it or go around it or break through it. What's what's a piece of advice that you would give to them?
0: There's this, it's kind of a cliche business uh, question is like, if you have two hills to run up to figure out which one that the flag is on top, uh, what do you do? Um, and the, the piece of advice is to run fast, because um, if you're wrong on the first one, uh, you got to get up the second one. Um, and I'd say it's kind of the same thing for a lot of these big problems, like you do have to step back, look at the, the problem set, and assess and figure out what's a, a good place to start. Um, but I think in general, if you have more than 85% of the information, you, you've overanalyzed. Um, so it's just, it's figuring out where to start, where to experiment, um, apologizing for any toes you step on in the way, but also not being too apologetic. There's, there's kind of this middle ground that you're always trying to find while moving forward. So, so I'm a, you know, my, my favorite quote is by your stumbling, the world is perfected by Sri Aurobindo. Um, and that's, that's like my general approach. It's just like keep moving.
2: I think a lot of us can really relate to that and it's such good advice like don't paralyze yourself through perfection it's really really important to try go take steps forward and then if you have to backtrack and go down another part of the trail then do it right
0: yeah yeah
2: very cool okay well so before we kind of pivot into give group let's let's talk about what you did with the University of Utah. I would really yeah. love to, to kind of deep dive that because it's it's an incredible um, piece of work that, that the University of Utah produced and you were a really essential part to this. So maybe explain what you did, why it was important and meaningful, and this really fit, feel, kind of feeds into community resiliency really well.
0: Sure. Um, so the University of Utah basically manages its own grid. They have three substations um, and part of their climate goals is carbon neutrality, um, like many, many other universities. Um, And figuring out the leverage points on long-term sustainability and carbon neutrality is is challenging, Um, especially when you manage, I think they have over 260 buildings. It's, you know, over 10 million square feet of of indoor space. It's just an insane management problem. Um, And Utah's grid is, while it's cleaning up very rapidly, um, it's still predominantly coal and natural gas. Um, so, a big part of our carbon emissions was our um, source of energy. Um, and there's also a ton of internal resistance to electrification because natural gas has a history of being cheap, depending on which uh, five year span you look at. Um, if you ignore the, you know, combustion consequences of natural gas. Um, So what we did uh, is we actually had an alum approach us with a geothermal project that's coming offline from NV Energy and they're gonna repower it and they're looking for an off taker um, of a geothermal resource. And so like you've got ground source, which is the loops in your backyard and geothermal energy is they basically inject water, you know, deep down into the earth and then they have other wells that take it off um, and it's superheated Mm. and drives a turbine. Um, so like the, the uptime of a project like that's like north of 99%. And what we did um, in the end was we had the first Schedule 34, so that we had the first large-scale renewable project delivered to the U. Um, we had to go to the legislature to have out-of-state resources approved. We, we navigated the entire university procurement process. We worked with the utility. We worked with the state to figure out how we get 20 megawatts of geothermal to deliver 51% of the U's energy needs um, for the next 25 years. Um, and within that process, like the projections are we will, like we're not saying we're gonna save money, the projections are we will save money. Um, and then that resource is combined with another 20 megawatts of solar. So they use that like 71% renewable energy. And uh, like the the scale of that is like, I wanna say it's 183,000 megawatt hours, which is about what City of Park City uses. So, you know, it's, it's a huge chunk of energy. Um, Managing to you.
2: Wow. So can, can you explain a little bit more the like the rate schedules, and and kind of yeah. why, what what that means, right? Because I know a lot of you know a lot of us in the sustainability community are constantly just pushing, pushing, pushing. Like, come on, fossil fuels. Like, let's make the transition and let's go. And come on, cities and come on, businesses. Let's let's make these pivots, right? But the rate schedules alone, at least in the United States, I'm not sure how the, you know, some of the grids work in other places exactly, but can you kind of explain what rate schedules are and why you went the route you yeah. did and and how um, how you got the utility to kind of work with you on that too?
0: Sure. Um, so uh, I, we could spend two hours on rate schedules and I won't force yeah. the audience to listen to that. Um, <laughs> the, in general, you have residential, you have commercial and you have industrial. Um, and commercial, there's a variety of different rate schedules within there. You've got like everything from your mom and pop store to something that's more production oriented. And then industrial is this category where energy is the cheapest, um, but there's lots of additional fees um, that that if you're managing your power on site well, um, you get a low rate. And if you're not managing your power on site well, you're punished. Um, and for the university, when you're, when you're thinking of it as like a small city, um, they're in this rate schedule called rate schedule nine. Um, where the best case scenario for the universities to figure out how they, they look at their full day of energy consumption, and University of Utah has a world-class hospital, it has cancer institutes, it has research facilities, um, we have a lot of industrial processes on site. So it's, it's one of those places where when you look at that and you model your overall consumption, you have to figure out what resource best matches your daily consumption. And so what we're looking to do is, is if you've got your typical curve, any of your baseload power, um, we're trying to address the baseload power with this geothermal resource because it's on and consistently or generally consistently producing during these hours of the day. And then how do you supplement with an intermittent renewable resource like solar? Mm -hmm. Um, So that was our goal. And then there are a variety of rate schedules where that fits. And and the kind of key loophole we had was there's this bill called the eBay bill. sb12 in utah where ebay was trying to figure out how they could power their data centers with renewable energy or a, a gas turbine those are kind of their two goals um they never got it done but we had this legislative loophole to force this project through um and that's what we did so we basically figured out what's the best match how do we facilitate that match financially and then you know for the rate schedules you're working with they are all hand done by the utility so they're they're immensely com- complicated they have um, all sorts of pros and cons and we're trying to figure out how we best fit resources to an outcome and so you know the utility has to honor what they've approved um and then they also are trying to manage their overall grid resource like you can't have a small city just, you know, loses power supply, they have to mitigate that. So there's a lot of other negotiations that come into um, figuring out what that relation is, relationship it is, productively. Um, and it was a two year negotiation. So it was not like, a, you know, <laughs> the math works, let's, let's move forward. There's a lot of emotional tied in with all that.
2: Sure. And it, the that's some of the benefit of geothermal, right, is it's more consistent. Right? A lot of the critics of solar, right, well, the sun doesn't shine all the time, but geothermal is a much more consistent, reliable source of energy, right? So that helps yeah, you navigate yeah. that more effectively, yeah.
0: Yeah, it gave them a confident, we we, we delivered some confidence before we threw a lot of uh, uh, other problems problems into the, to the solution set.
2: And where do you think the utility is with that now? You know, it's been a couple of years since this has all really gotten kind of put in place. But how do you, where do you rate their confidence level and partnership on that? I know you're not with the university anymore, but what, what's your kind yeah. of sense?
0: Well, you know, I still work with utility a ton with with my my day to day job, and uh, a lot of the uh, like C or community renewable energy plan or program, which is basically delivering similar programs to a number of Utah cities. Um, and then there's a lot of schedule 32 work which is a, a different rate structure with similar outcomes for summit county park city um intermountain there's, there's a i think vale is in that deal as well there's, there's a number of, of different entities within that so i think they you know uh, the the utility business model is anchored in ownership of assets um so when you take assets away from them they're hesitant um, but they also have to figure out how to become a better management organization, like, like as the grid modernizes, uh, or hopefully modernizes, they have to figure out what is their position within that. And there, there's kind of this long transition within utility spaces of, of how do you decouple. And, and by decouple, the, the traditional model is that you sell a resource and then you sell the services to that resource. And decoupling is saying like, you're just a service provider, you're not necessarily the service owner. Um, and that, that shift is something that hit natural gas first and is starting to hit electricity. Um, so I think in some ways, you know, kind of getting back to your question, in some ways it was a good test for that philosophy. Um, and I think in a lot of ways it's a threat to the history of, of how they've done business. And that's just a very, um, you know, when I step back and just look at a utility as like a, a group of, of people trying to do their best to keep our lights on, it's really tough to transition from this 1950s model of just like, just keep the pipes full um, and, and make sure there's not too many leaks to like, how do we look at all the changes that are coming to this utility space and all these opportunities enabled by technology? Uh, and and what, would we, what would we do to build a better world? And how do we manage all this complexity in a way that, that we still have a business?
2: Well said, um, you said something in there a, a minute or two ago Uh, about how it helped to kind of have a really good compelling case ahead of going to the utility and talking to them about this agreement, right? Is that kind of the biggest piece of advice you would give to like business owners or, you know, entrepreneurs, anybody that is trying to get their company to engage with the utility? Or is there something else you would offer as like a really good place to start? Because this is one of those big walls to try to climb and you certainly climbed it, but any advice you would give?
0: yeah I mean um, some of it is is having a comfortable time horizon so so we knew we knew when this this site was going to get repowered and what it would take to get to certain contract phases so I think kind of having the long view of what are those milestones is critical, and then partnership you know we, we had our both productive and contentious relationship with utility Um, and then we had a buffer of an excellent attorney and i wouldn't say attorneys fix all things but to have that mediator party or or person who can like hear both sides and translate because there's a ton of translation that occurs when uh using the university as an example they have a pretty clear set of their problem set they have a clear set of who they are within the grid and then you have this other operator who has a very different perspective as to like what's necessary or successful for their for their business And I'd say that that relationship gets played out over and over and over again in business and in sustainability. That it's just, you're trying to figure out what the other person's perspective and threats are and how do you come to the middle or understand that like that is, you're you're talking about like a one in a billion chance, why is this in the contract? Um, Or or should we be debating this uh, or can we just accept that this isn't gonna happen?
2: Yeah, mediator, diplomat, somebody that can help bridge the gap a little bit, right? really yeah really smart okay um okay so let's let's kind of pivot now I guess into what you're doing now um, you know give group is very much in the space of community resiliency so just give us kind of an overview about what give group is what your role is and we'll we'll kind of dig in as we go along
0: sure um so gentrification is is kind of like uh, I will say like it is both what Give does and what Give tries to do better, um, is you have pockets of low income in, in every large community. And what we do is we're low income developers, so we'll come in and, and we'll stabilize portions of the community. Um, had a community. We've got a thorough focus on maintaining community fabric. So how do you have commercial that fits the community? How do you make sure that if, if you're displacing folks, um, they have opportunities to, to live within these low income properties? Um, so we've got, you know, high level. We've got projects in Ogden, Salt Lake, and Pro- Provo. Um, we have roughly 1,300 units under management, um, and then a pipeline of more. Um, and I think the pipeline right now is north of 800. Um, and we build all electric, zero emission buildings. Um, in many cases, they're net zero if we have the resources. Um, and we're we're in neighborhoods like in Salt Lake, Guadalupe, where there's. Um, there's a lot of slumlords. There's, I'm sure, some fantastic landlords as well. Um, but basically, how do you best manage and best elevate people through the housing system and provide housing for all? Um, in addition to the low income housing we manage, and, and I should define low income, um, roughly 60% of our units are 50% AMI and below. And AMI is uh, area median income. Um, so you're looking at. Uh, what is becoming a very unaffordable city providing affordable options um, through tax credit structure and our management structure and we build and hold. Um, and then we also consult on projects that are uh, like permanent supportive housing. So Pamela's place is a hundred unit uh, facility where it's 0% AMI, it's people transitioning out of homelessness with an onsite clinic and support and it's trauma-influenced design. So I just threw out a ton of jargon um, but basically we build low income housing.
2: Okay. So, we'll, so let's kind of dig into that and we'll work through the, the jargon a little bit with just a, a higher level view of this thing, I guess, maybe. So why, why is supporting these low income communities, why is that good for a more resilient community or avoiding kind of a fragile community? Can you talk about kind of what the benefits that the whole picture sees because of that?
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll use a really... Um, I'll use a park city example, which isn't a great scale example, but it's, it's such a microcosm. I think it helps. Um, if you don't have, if workers can't live close to work, they drive to work. Um, and, and that specific problem creates traffic and, and everybody hates traffic, especially wealthy individuals who don't think traffic should exist. Uh, cause they, they have already bought their expensive home right near where they want to be. So, so that's just one form, um, of, of, of the solution set. Um, and then, you know, All cities need employees, they need people, and even if we we get into this, you know, post UBI uh, future, um, urban areas have good sustainability outcomes, they have good access, it's where arts created music, all these different things that you need collisions of people, and need diversity of people to have those collisions. Um, So having long term low income stability within a community. it recognizes refugees, it recognizes ADA, it recognizes low-income work um, or partially employed people. There's all sorts of reasons why people can or can't make rent. Um, so some people are climbing a ladder out of homelessness. Some people are, there's just a variety of cases as to why um, rent should be less than, you know, the, the kind of statistical 38 or 36% of your, your, your net take home. Um, sure. And there's the way housing has been commodified um, and leverage isn't uh, an ethical outcome for you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We can't become our best selves if we're spending the majority of our time trying to pay for the roof where we're at.
2: Yeah, there, there is an interesting correlation to what would happen if we were living in nature and you would spend so much time building your shelter up there, right? Which that makes sense a little bit. But then you look at all the things we've created that are spin outs of that that are problematic. I mean, you know, a, a kind of a story um, that speaks to this a little bit. It's a kind of a hypothetical, but rooted in another real world example is that Park City just recently experienced a wildfire and it was started by a catalytic converter blowing up under a car and there were a lot of people on like Twitter and stuff that were like you know this person should be held responsible and you know we need stronger emission and safety inspections and then we do need some of that but one of the things I thought I was like what if that person was like a hospitality worker that worked in Park City can't afford to live there isn't making a super great wage so they can only afford a car that is 20 years old or whatever it may be and they're driving to Salt Lake or somewhere else because that's the only place they can afford to live right it that these are the type of kind of fragile that this is the kind of fragility that we see when we don't have a balance system that allows people to stay kind of localized right we're adding in more risk factors. Um, okay, is there. Are there places in the world that you would you would kind of recommend people look at as like a, a beacon or a, you know a a place that has achieved a kind of a community resiliency sort of status? I mean, I no, there's no perfect place, but is there any any place your mind goes to immediately?
0: You know, it's tough because I feel like there's so many partial solutions. So, like you know, Nordic countries have a very strong social safety net. Um, does that mean? like like, what makes a great community is this combination of, um, you know, resources, access, design, um, thoughtfulness, interaction, mediators, moderators, um, all these different things that, that help um keep it flowing and and so like in some cases you can say that you know uh communist russia did a great job building housing uh but is it architecturally beautiful are these livable like you know you can even look to like 1960s and 70s examples in the united states of cabrini green um, or, or other housing projects where housing was created but communities weren't so so there's a balance between what makes um truly good housing or resilient community? Uh, and then what do people have access to? Uh, and, you know, like I would critique you know, as much as I appreciate things like Wasatch Community Gardens and, and a lot of our regional producers, I would say there's there's not a strong regional producer scene when it comes to like fruit, vegetables, meats. Um, and you go to other parts of the country where they have a much stronger producer scene like Santa Cruz, um, but affordability is so low. So you're trying to hit the sweet spot of of, thoughtfully designed and planned communities with thoughtfully designed buildings and blocks um, with a rich resource of, of the things that help bring us together, but also make life worth living. And that, that like, that magic is also kind of personal, um, you know, things that get me really excited. Uh, some people don't care about, and, and there's other communities for them.
2: Very interesting. You know, this is actually maybe a good opportunity to kind of bring in circularity so what I'll do is is offer kind of a foundation for what circular kind of economy or communities look like and then we'll take a mindful minute and let you all sit yeah. uh, in nature for a minute and then we'll we'll carry on in the conversation as we go to the other side. So circularity has has been kind of it's one of these jargons it's a you know a trendy catchy word but it is rooted in something i think that is really really hopeful i think for where we can go with our economic model so there's there's i see two things when i like or two main resources for me anyway when i look at circularity so the first one is a wonderful book called donut economics by kate rayworth and for anybody that hasn't read or i think it's a more of an audio book listen to it it's really really good it also has like a lot of visuals with like a pdf thing that comes with it but a donut economy is looking at like the inner ring of a donut as a social foundation and we'll post a a visual and the on-demand version of this, but um, the social foundation is creating those fundamental human needs, right? So access to food and internet and decent work and water and energy and all that stuff, right? And then as we expand out across the donut, Um, we get into kind of this safe space for humanity that sits inside of the outer ring, which is like the planetary limits that we face as a species, right? Where if we go outside of our planet limits, we've used too much resources. We've altered the climate so it's not livable anymore. Um, We've created wildfires and towns are burning down and things like that. So I think really thinking about it is like we need to create a stronger social foundation for these places to be kind of localized and have access in a fairly equitable and equal way, and then have that coexist with other places in the world and of course the, the planet that we live on. Um, and then the other resource that I'll recommend for everybody listening is, uh, go to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and you can kind of see what the principles of the idea of a circular economy is. And there's it's really just three very simple things, but very hard to achieve. Number one, eliminating waste and pollution which can help with, of course, resource mining, but also local air quality and climate change problems. Number two, keeping those products in a circular loop where they don't go out, they don't get wasted, they get reused, repurposed, refurbished, recycled, um, all that good stuff. And then number three, a circular economy helps and supports and allows nature to regenerate itself, to heal from some of the damage that our slightly out of balance economy has created to this point, um, or a lot of out of balance. So a few things for you to think on, chew on a little bit, and uh, we're going to go sit down in the desert for for a minute. We'll see on the other side. If anybody has not been to a desert in their life, there is more beauty there than you think. Particularly here in Utah, we're very lucky. Um, there's a place in Africa called Petra too that is supposed to be like one of the most amazing things to see. Okay, Matt, how you doing? How you feeling? Feeling good. I'm well, yeah, <laughs> cool. All right, um, let's let's dig in a little bit more into um, something that I think can be helpful for. I, I'd say probably entrepreneurs that are working in the nonprofit space more than business, but there's also something in business too, that um, I think can be a really good resource for people that are trying to start their journey. Let's talk about grants. So you have a ton of experience in in grant writing and and pursuit and kind of just general strategy for how to, how to go after grants for work that you're doing. You know, I know on like the wonder platform, which is um, our strategic partner for these events there's a lot of conservation groups and things so you know there's always grants and things that can support some of those causes but there's also starting to be more and more sustainability grants too so maybe the state of what that looks like would be good to hear from you but let's start with let's start with just general strategy of identifying a grant going after it getting it and and best practices that you would recommend.
0: Sure um, so you know like what first like grants are kind of a dice roll um and and what you're trying to figure out in that dice roll is is how do you increase your odds um and and some of the basics are are making sure you you've read um and to the best of your ability understand what the grant is asking for and that usually takes more research than just reading the grant It's, it's like a job application um where they they're using their own internal language to express what they need and you usually have to do some research to figure out who is saying what they need and what is their background to that. Um, and then you know the, the very basics of, of clarity, grammar, having a proofreader to make sure that you're clear, because um, we all kind of get in our heads. So that's the, that's the like super brass tacks. Um, I, I think a level above that strategy wise is thinking about who the grant maker is and what kind of relationships you could or, or might have with them. Um, so looking at it as a, a growing partnership, if you don't have an existing relationship, of, of where can you start with a small bet where you can deliver a clear win and report back a win? Because the grant maker is, is they've got bosses, whether it's funders or donors or someone else, um, that they're trying to prove success with that money. Um so that's how you start to, to, to kind of like get a toehold into um, that organization or that group of organizations, and then from there there's there's clusters of organizations that have similar goals or overlap or similar grant makers or similar donors, um, where you can start to move up the value chain to higher and higher grant quantities. Um, but yeah, there, there's everything from nonprofits that are granting uh to individuals individual donors who can just write a check to you and you don't have to write an application um Mm -hmm. to very long and tedious federal grants
2: okay and and business grants uh, more specifically like for profit i think a lot of business people don't realize that there are some of those that are available but you need partnership to do it right you've got to find uh kind of a local community public benefit sort of thing that you've got to have it's and it's good to work with like a nonprofit to help you um, push forward on something like that is that right or am I off
0: base there. I think generally that's true like okay. for the most part you're working with uh, you either have a nonprofit within the organization like Give does or um, you have uh, some kind of community foundation partner. Um, But in some cases you're working with grant monies that are like basic, why is grant money is because it's been, uh, it's a tax write off at some phase. And if you have got someone who's already absorbed the tax write off and is just handing the cash to you, there are ways in which businesses are just receiving, you know, um, the SBA uh, grants a fair amount of money so small business administration, there there are, you know, federal or state entities they'll just hand you cash.
2: Okay. Um, <laughs> I think that probably piques the interest of some of our audience. Um, yeah. Let's talk about sustainability grants. I guess are, are you seeing anything in the space of like, you know, climate change or waste, you know, consumption, energy, you know what what is that starting to look like? Are you seeing growth there? I know there's there was supposed to be some more funding. And you know, some of the like the Build Back Better planning and stuff with the United States. I don't know what, how this is happening, you know, in other places of the world, but what are you seeing? Are you seeing trends that are looking more optimistic that there's money coming in for this type of work?
0: I mean, like where, my my first exposure to like major foundation money flowing into sustainability was was through the Urban Sustainability Directors Network, um, and and USDN has very strong partnerships with like Rockefeller Foundation, Kresge Foundation, so so a lot of the big national foundation names, and, and I would say that foundation money, you know, especially Bezos are uh, are star-studded uh, uh, billionaires are um, throwing a lot of cash into via foundations. Um, so I think that's positive, but it, it kind of, um, let's see, how do I say this? I think funding is a good thing. I think foundations being the route to funding isn't an optimal pathway. Um, there, there's still a lot of personal influence or fickleness that comes with that. And, and having worked with a number of those foundations for um, opportunities, uh, you know, they can change year to year or they can push in, you know, 10 or $100 million, no problem, one year. And then they've decided that's not where they want to focus the next year um and a problem like sustainability uh takes some focus that doesn't mean you shouldn't you know kill some of your babies but it takes some focus
2: and so okay so you kind of alluded to maybe that the structure of of grant coming in through these foundations is maybe not the best how do you see granting in regard to building community resiliency do you still see it as a really positive pathway And if you were to make changes to the way it's done or, you know, recommend people go at it a different way, what would you recommend?
0: Um, So I think there's good research happening around resiliency. Like, you know, it kind of depends on how you want to pick it apart. Like if you look at the Peace Corps as like a resiliency organization for the bottom billion, like there's some fantastic work that's occurring, Um, but there's also a lot of debate as to what is the best way to help build resilient communities. Um, and I would say within the States right, where you're looking at much more complicated systems, um, there's like good investment into diversity and equity, but I think when it really comes to picking apart, what makes uh, the, the teamwork that it takes and the structure building and the, um, network building that has to occur within a community to, to build a truly resilient community, that's a different game. And, and I don't know if grant money, I think grant money in the right hands can do that, but finding those hands, like like the the problem with with grant structures is like, is the problem with hiring. Finding the best possible people out there um, and just putting out a job description are two totally different things. Um, and, and figuring out how you mediate that gap. Is, is it recruiters? Is it, you know, you have a more proactive HR team or vice versa, like, like what is the best way to connect the talent to the resources is a perpetual problem. So, um, when I like think across American cities which is, is kind of more of my focus I don't know if uh, I, I can't say resiliency is, is the thing that's this is particularly strong at the moment um, I, th- I think there's a lot more awareness around climate disasters but but I think we're still pretty much a like you know mop it up and reset community or culture we're yeah. not there yet to like how do we work ahead on this
2: so, yeah, I mean, I was, that's, I was gonna ask a question about, about COVID in this regard, right? A lot of sustainability champions have hoped that COVID would be this thing that would correlate to like, look what happens when we're fragile right? And what's going to happen as climate change continues to impact these communities. And of course, that's happening, right? People are having yeah. to, you know, because they're becoming climate refugees and relocating countries and losing their towns to a wildfire. And there's all kinds of things and flooding, the flooding has started to become out of control as well, right? But COVID has been this thing that we've all kind of hoped would get people to like, oh, we need to reassess and readdress How do you see that right now? And I don't think we'll know, right? We won't know the history of all of this until way down the line. And we look back a little bit, but what is your outlook in regard to what COVID has taught us about fragility versus resiliency and and a pathway forward?
0: Yeah. I mean, so I'll caveat with um, like, I'm, I'm definitely a humanist. Like I I believe in team humanity and I'm very optimistic for ability to, to overcome all sorts of challenges Um, with that, that, I'm a, a very much of a, a Vonnegut <laughs> thread of humanism too, where like bitter coated sugar pill, and, and my my kind of bitter response to, to COVID is that like, uh, you know, especially living in Park City, we saw a lot of wealth move in. Um, uh, people yeah. with the means relocated, migrated to what was comfortable for them, um, and not with a lot of regard to the sensitivity or fragility of these systems. Um, and and I don't think it's every human's job to think about where they're moving and why they're moving there and to treat everyone um, with the utmost respect. But I, but I feel like we saw a lot of uh, tax evasion, basically. People migrating for purposes of of pleasure and, sh- and short-term comfort instead of yeah. of investment. Um, and I don't know how to change that in our current stage of capitalism. Um, I'll, I'll just say it like that. Um, yeah. But I, I would say that, that COVID, Covid triggered a lot of new expectations and a lot of migration that we're still catching up with, and I, I think there's a lot of lessons in that. They're that going to be replicated in, in climate migration um, it, between coasts and and you know highly sensitive. I'm thinking of places like Tucson, which is a place I love, um, but they're not going to do well with climate change. I don't know how how some of these cities persist or exist. Um, Without a tremendous investment for just maintaining the status quo, much less getting ahead.
2: I think there's a lot of people that can relate to this specific piece of like being kind of inherently fundamentally optimistic and believing the best. And that's the, the very reverse here, we are fighting for like the best of humans, right? That's our that's our thing. But to do that, we also feel that bitter <laughs> bitterness, that pessimism, that frustration. And, you know, I think what I heard, and you say there, right, is you're gonna, as always, you're gonna have some that are gonna try to be proactive and push on this um, place of progress and being more prepared and building a more equitable and balanced community. But there's gonna be some places that are probably gonna have to just get hit by it before they'll learn, right? And unfortunately, like, this, the, the sadness of that is that the people that will get hit the hardest by the community getting affected are going to be the ones that are lower income, don't have the best housing and shelter and access to resources and things like that, right? Um, yeah, it, yeah, you did yeah. great Point job translating
0: is- my, my, my barf of uh, a...
2: <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, that's nice yeah. of you to say. I wasn't yeah. sure if I was doing it justice myself. So,
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, hmm. any anything Capacity to migrate. Yeah, I would just say yeah. capacity to migrate is just a yeah. tremendous issue and I don't I don't think our first our first move shouldn't be like how do we help everyone migrate our our first move should be like how do we build more stable and resilient cities and then how do we kind of do an assessment that's that's not just political but thoughtful around what do these cities take or, or communities take and how can we best invest in them um, and you know just watching western water law play out in Utah it's, it's tough to believe that we're using our resources wisely and thinking about the future effectively um, instead of just trying to maintain certain status quos or, or power dynamics.
2: This is a really important thing for us to, to be wary of and think about as, as we go forward because I mean, migration and immigration and things, very political complicated problems to solve, right? And it is good to get ahead of that because climate is only gonna displace more and more people even within a country and you're going to have people going from state to state and stuff i have been making this joke that the eastern canada is like the one place that is fairly resilient to climate change stuff right now but they're not really going to be because everybody's going to try to move to eastern canada so then they're going to inherently be affected by climate change so don't yeah, don't yeah. move to eastern canada <laughs> uh, just, chance yeah. owns
0: it so <laughs> <laughs> he's
2: bought it up oh goodness all right um this is a really good point I think for for people to think about when when you're building your your business model you know be thinking about how to protect your foundation right whether it be um, you know the the utility and the infrastructure and things that you're going to be utilizing obviously there's a lot of like virtual businesses and stuff that are getting up and running and there's a little bit more flexibility there but Brick and mortar is not going anywhere. It's really important to think about what are your climate risks. You know, if you're building new buildings, I mean, even just like the air quality control and things because of smoke in the air and for the wildfires and things like that, right? Um, And don't forget about the human piece of this because people, businesses are getting more complicated to manage because you're having a mix of people like in building, in office, and remote and all over the place. There's a lot of factors to really consider um, when you're trying to build a business in this world that we're in. It's only going to get more complicated as we go. Um, okay. So let's um let's go into to circularity a little bit as kind of a, a, a preview to the next part of the conversation where we'll welcome just everybody in the audience to kind of come up and participate, ask questions, share stories, share your own insights. Let's talk about circularity a little bit and kind of circular economics or circular innovation, however you wanna come at it. I'd just be curious, Matt, from you, what does circularity just as a term mean to you in regards to sustainability?
0: Um, So I'll I'll give the context. I started off in waste consulting um, and most of our clients were cities, states, counties, uh, very large corporations on the West Coast. Um, so I spent a lot of time literally in landfills doing waste audits, um, in assessments of those systems. And you're, you're looking at, you know, for the most part within the waste system, you're looking at like the ass end of the problem, uh, everything that's already happened is what you're seeing. And then you're trying to figure out what are the levers up that supply chain to figure it out. Um, so like a, a really good example of circularity is, is, you know, putrescibles, things that compost rot and can be recirculated within the supply chain. Um, recyclables have and and you know I'm sure the, the hair on chances neck went up when, when we open up that topic there are some topics or some products that are that are highly um, circular and there are some products that, that really have no future even though they're re- labeled recyclable um, and, and then there's just pure waste products and I think the definition of pure waste is um, uh, is kind of arbitrary that there's certain products that have you know cement can be reused endlessly um, in different formats. Uh, same thing with steel. Um, so picking building materials that have or, or materials period, and then they're regional enough supply chains. Um, Kind of depending on how you look at shipping these days, um, those are things you're trying to figure out. So, so there's there's you know pretty clear natural systems where circularity occurs, and then there's unnatural systems where we try and ape it or mimic it, uh, sometimes successfully. And then there's other realms where we've just kind of given up on it, um, or they're very hard problems to solve
2: something you said in there about, you know, there's a future for some things and not a future for other things, um, kind of peaked. Plastic versus glass. Do you think that's a good representation of that, right? I mean, glass can be infinitely recycled, but it's problematic because it breaks and it's resource intensive Mm -hmm. to create it and things. But how do you see glass and plastic in relation to a future, no future, a mix of all of it, of course, right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, I, right. I think- you,
2: Just, you you got the, the recycling yeah. and zero waste nerd out of me, so I wanna, I wanna dig into it. It fits with circular economy. It is very yeah. much about consumption, so yeah.
0: I, I mean, plastic is a miracle product. Like like the, the things that it yeah. makes happen are, are incredible. Um, I think it's application for convenience um, or uses for convenience. Um, there are cases where it makes a ton of sense. Like within a medical setting, I want a yeah. single use plastic yes. for my syringe. Um, and, and, there are other settings where I, I would rather not see plastic. Um, you know, I've got a lot of love for glass. I know there's also sand is an overall complicated issue. Um, so it's, it's one of those ones where, where I think it's, it's my preferred material for, for cooking, uh, like for holding cooked foods, for transporting cooked foods, yeah. mason jars are, are a miracle in themselves. Um, yeah. but yeah, it's, it's a tough one where, um, <sighs> It's a heavy material to use, but it's, it is recyclable. You just need regional resources to manage it. And I'd say the same thing for plastics.
2: I You said something in there that's really insightful and it may be one of the best kind of quick descriptions I've ever heard about plastic. There's, there's some areas where it's a miracle product and then we need it. We absolutely need it. But when it's used for convenience, that's where we've missed something, right? Um, but there's a lot of really amazing things happening in that space right i mean even like toothpaste and the little like pill like tablets and things like that right i mean there's yeah, yeah. there's a lot of things that are still convenient but better for the planet right so we're totally. we're working away yeah. yeah 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 okay um so let's let's do one more kind of big piece of advice and then we will uh, we'll take a, another couple minutes and uh, kind of carry over to the next part of the conversation but you have a lot of experience looking at kind of the whole chain and system of it, right? I.e. the systems thinker. Um, what is, is the advice that you would give to somebody trying to figure out how to implement a more circular supply chain? What are, what are What is a best practice or a handful of best practices that you would recommend and kind of helping them see how something they're going to throw out there you know how can you get it to loop back around and, and keep it in a flow of circularity what what tips
0: would you provide yeah i mean the, the flipping the system i think is pretty important to to like if you're always looking at it from from the, the end of it the end of the life cycle starting to look at it from the beginning of its life cycle mm-hmm. um can be really helpful um, the so flipping it on its head is important. What if we did the opposite is another good question. Um, so like, what are other choices? Um, there's a lot of tough math in systems thinking and, and that doesn't mean you have to do the math, but like, um, you know, one of my favorite examples is like what's more sustainable, like uh, New Zealand lamb or Montana lamb, if you live in Utah um, and from a supply chain, from grass fed, grass finished supply chain perspective for the most part is New Zealand lamb. I'm sure there's some producers in Montana that are they're completely different, but if it's, you know, uh, grain raised, uh, on, on the U S grain system. Uh, you have more embedded carbon in Montana lamb than New Zealand lamb. Mm. Uh, and those are the, the weird problems you run into, um, where you can't always say locals better. You can't always say, um, that nothing should come from China or from, from some other manufacturing area. You have to start to pick and choose, um, what is your priority in this outcome and, and how do you measure against that priority when you look at comparison products? Um, so I think I overcomplicated that more than simplified it, but um, th- these are well, like the circularity is complicated. Yeah. is the kind of the short yeah. answer.
2: Well, I, I was only going to complicate it more by making the everybody's head spin and say like, is it better to eat beef if you get it locally or be vegan and sourcing something from who knows where, right? Totally. right? There's yeah. It's tough. It is is really tough. The reason I say that, don't make yourself crazy, right? Just just use some basic foundations. And I like what, what you laid in there. I will actually put those, I think, into the key points when we post this for everybody because there is like some basic approaches, like looking up the chain. So, you know, before you and where you're pulling from, and then, you know, thinking about where it goes to. That all is connected. And we talked about carbon emissions in the last conversation we had, and like scope one, two, and three emissions. Mm-hmm. And that's a really good way, like businesses will sometimes get lost. Like, well, I don't, I can't afford to buy renewable energy. I don't know how to do all the things Matt did with the utility and all that craziness, right? Well, some of it is like, okay, but what are you buying, right? What are you buying? And then you can start to think about how to reduce your footprint because you're buying in a more circular, smarter, sustainable, locally sourced, whatever it might be. Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Work where you have control. I mean, just railing yeah. against the system all the time is a, is a good way to get frustrated. Yes.
1: <laughs> Familiar,
2: yes. I think we all know that a little bit as, as we go, yes. <laughs> well, On that note, that's a good good time to uh, listen to a little music.
1: Okay, sustainability travelers. This concludes part one of our conversation with Matt Abbott, aka the systems thinker here in the Fearverse. Our music today was brought to you by Cranky Conductor, look him up on Spotify and Instagram, and Deodo. Thanks, as always, to our planet for the sights and sounds of nature. Today, we featured Water Canyon in the Canaan Wilderness of beautiful Utah, USA, and the big sky in the Gallatin Valley of Montana, USA. To continue with community resiliency and circular innovation, join us for part two of our conversation with Matt and we'll also bring in Paul Salinger, a.k.a. The Provocateur, as well as some really insightful comments and questions from the Zoom chat from the live video event. Thank you so much for listening to the Reverse podcast experience. If you're an aspiring sustainability champion who wants to break through the status quo, join our email experience at linktree slash viridescent with a dot between the TR and the EE. And lastly, do you know another sustainability champion or inspiring human out there that could benefit from this content? Share it, subscribe it, like it, review it, comment it, all the things. And we'd love to hear from you and your perspective. It teaches us shit. Later, friends. Signed, your beer Vigilantes.